Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, I have a really fun topic for you. It has to do with agriculture, farming, um, but not farming by humans. Instead, we're going to take a really close look at the soil and investigate how ants will farm their own little fungal gardens. Um, I became interested in this topic after coming across a new paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, we've got two of the authors on the paper here. The paper was entitled Trachymyrmex septentrionalis, excuse me, septentrionalis ants promote fungus garden hygiene using trichoderma-derived metabolite cues. Now that is a mouthful, but I promise we're going to get into a lot of the science. I promise it's going to make sense um, as we dive in. So let me introduce our two guests today. We have Dr. Marcy Balunas, who is an associate professor at the University of Michigan, Department of Microbiology and Immunology, and the Department of Medicinal Chemistry. Dr. Balunas's research group focuses on host-associated microbial communities as unique sources for natural products drug discovery. And she uses these to look for new targeted drug leads and to address questions within the bigger field of chemical ecology. Our other guest is Dr. Jonathan Klassen. He's an associate professor in the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology at the University of Connecticut. He has studied fungus growing ant symbionts um, for the last 13 years. Um, first as a postdoctoral fellow in Canada or a a Canadian postdoctoral fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and then since 2013 at University of Connecticut. He and Dr. Balunas have been collaborating over the past decade and have been funded by the National Science Foundation, among other funding organizations. It's so great to have you both, uh, Marcy and Jonathan. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for inviting us. This is really fun. Yes, yeah. thanks for the invitation. Cool. Well, I want to just start with a basic question of you know, how are ants like little farmers? It sounds like a strange concept to some. Can you can you explain what they do? Maybe we'll start with Jonathan. Sure. So so ants are are are, are amazing, and, and all kinds of different ants do all kinds of different things. The ones we study are a particular group of ants. They're called the atine ants, and uh, they don't grow plants like human farmers do, but they grow fungi underground. Uh, and so what they actually do is they'll go around and collect plant material and, and bring it underground and then the fungus will digest that. And then the fungus will make these little swellings on the end uh, of their hyphae that the ants eat. So that's, that's the crop that the ants harvest. So, okay, so the ants are bringing the fungi food to eat that is made of plants. So they're feeding plants to their fungi and then they're eating the fungi. That's exactly right. That's really cool. And you might have seen some of this on like David Attenborough, that sort of stuff, where the ants carry the leaves around the forest in little lines on their head. Those are the leaf cutting ants. They're the, the biggest, most impressive version of this symbiosis. Very cool. Now, Marcy, I know your lab specializes in complex secondary metabolites in plants and fungi. I'd imagine that the type of plants they bring might influence, you know, the fungal chemistry or what's going on with the chemical signaling there. So I think that's a good question. Um, and it's not one that we've spent as much time exploring, to be honest. Um, I think mm -hmm. others have looked at the plants that come in to um, the system. Uh, we have looked at the way, the different chemical signatures um, with Jonathan's lab and with the Dorstein lab in San Diego have looked at sort of the three-dimensional version of 
what changes over time. And that could be mm -hmm. um, maybe there are more plant metabolites up at the top uh, and then they start getting digested along the way. Um, and so, uh, so I think we haven't looked as much at the chemistry of the, the plants going in, definitely not in the collaboration with Jonathan so far. That's cool. But with, with regards to the, the fungi themselves, I know you've done a lot of work on using tools from the field of metabolomics. First, maybe we'll start by there. Can you explain to us what is metabolomics and how can you use metabolomics to kind of read the chemistry of what's happening with these, with these fungi? Sure. So metabolomics, um, it usually takes uh, two flavors. Um, I think there are more, but the two main ones are um, uh, LCMS, so mass spectrometry, could be GCMS also. So mass spectrometry, where you're looking at the masses of all of the different compounds in the system. Um, there are also folks that use NMR or nuclear magnetic resonance um, based metabolomics. Our group has focused on the mass spec version and we're most interested in untargeted metabolomics. And so we are most interested in the unknown chemistry. So mm -hmm. you can look just at the known chemistry. And so, um, for example, um, uh, glucose, uh, you could look at glucose and a whole bunch of sugar derivatives, which likely if you were to look at the um, gongliodial sacs, which are the little sacs that Jonathan was talking about that the, that the ants eat, um, they'd be full of sugars and different molecules for the ant nutrition. Um, we haven't done that um, uh, sort of, t that fine resolution um, uh, work to figure out what exactly is in there. Although Jonathan's been studying these ants long enough, he may know of others in the field that have done that. Um, but we are interested in sort of the chemical communication between the ant, um, the fungus garden, and uh, in this case, we were most interested in the ants in the fungus garden. Um, and then a pathogen coming in, so trichoderma fungi, um, uh, as part of this study, we, uh, Jonathan's group really looked at and determined that trichoderma can act as a fung fungal pathogen in this case. Mm -hmm. um, as, because, um, because the known pathogen for this, these types of ants has, um, has maybe a limited range. Um, and okay. so in the northernmost regions where we're looking at these, we think that trichoderma likely plays a big role in the system. Um, and so well, that was the first part of what we did is the, in this study was to figure out how the, um, how the ants recognize that trichoderma is there. Like, it, it, are the, is trichoderma pathogen? And then if it is, how does the fungus, how does the system deal with it, especially since it's such a complex system? That's right. That's a really great point. Maybe, um, Jonathan, can you explain a little bit more about what a fungal garden looks like? I mean, I'm assuming these are microscopic. Do you have to look at these under a microscope? And how many species are typically involved? Sure. So, uh, so I, I can show you because I happen to have one of these right here. So what you're looking at here is an ant colony and we, we have it in, in these little boxes to keep it. I'm going to take the lid off so you can see it a little bit better. Are these biting ants? Be careful. These here. are not biting ants. The adders will bite. They're, those are the leaf cutter ones. They'll bite. These are their younger evolutionary cousins and they're the northernmost 
uh, fungus growing ant called Trichomeric Septentrionalis. The Septentrionalis refers to the seven stars in the in, in, in the Little Dipper, so the with the North Star. So that's the the northern part. So all of this honeycomb stuff you're seeing here is the ants' fungus garden, and you might be able to see the ants are all wandering all over top of it and doing all these behaviors where they're planting food in. The food's sort of on this side here. We feed them cornmeal in the lab, uh, which they do quite nicely. Um, and they'll build these complicated three-dimensional structures by wrapping the, fun the, the, fun the fungi's hyphae around each of these particles of food. And as they do that, then that'll give the, the fungus an opportunity to digest it and then build up those structures for the ants to eat. Incredible. For, so for those of you on the podcast that are listening only that aren't that aren't seeing this on our YouTube version, I just want to give you a little bit of a, of a visual of this. It is it, when I first saw it, I thought it was some kind of weird cardboard. It looks like something that I might see in a Dr. Seuss book with many different curves. Um, like you said, honeycomb, but in a very, you know, very different shapes. Um, kind of a pale brown and their ants running all over it. So that's fascinating that, you, that they use the food to help build the structure for these for these fungi. So this is not something you need a microscope for. You can see this. It's a very- Oh, you can see this. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like and, a shoebox size thing. You can see this growing. Incredible. Right. And when we go out in the wild and find these, we'll dig a, what we'll do is we'll find that they have a very distinctive uh, top of the chamber. Oh, there's going to be a snake under my desk. That's not ideal. I'll put it down. The, uh, uh, the, they have this, it looks like a fortune cookie made of sand. Uh, it's, it's on the dirt. So we can find those. They're very sort of distinctive and charismatic. And oh, once we find one of, yeah, they, they, so once we find one of those, we'll dig a trench down and eventually we'll hit a little bit of, of, of dirt that wiggles and sort of, that means that there's something empty and behind it. And so the picture that's on the screen here is, uh, there, there, there's the, 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 the fortune cookie next to a shovel. We dig down and we, we can find this fungus garden underground and it's about a softball shape when it's a nice, good, healthy sized one. And there'll be one, two, sometimes even three of these colonies in this, uh, sort of these chambers with fungus inside in the, uh, in the, the species that we're studying. Uh, the, the, the adders, the leaf cutters with the ants running around their head, they're much larger. There's millions of ants and you need a backhoe to dig up a mature one of those. Wow. Ours are simpler, so it's easier to do experiments and things like that. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. And so these fungal gardens, I mean, it's it's hard for me to tell through the computer screen, but are there different species of fungi that typically make up a fungal garden? Or is it just one species that they're really catering to? Right, great question. So so mostly it's a single species called Leuco agaricus. Um, there are sometimes other fungi that are living in there. Um, and most of the time we think of those as either weeds or things that will potentially cause disease. And that's what we showed in this paper with the trichoderma fungus. We find it in pretty much every fungus garden we look at uh, in, in our species, um, but under certain conditions, it can actually cause disease. So it may be coming in with the food, it may be coming from the soil or something like that, but when everything goes wrong, then it really causes trouble. And so that means that the ants have to have some way to keep it from causing too much trouble. So when you say trouble, what does this pathogen, this infection or disease-causing fungus do to the colony? Like, does it harm the other fungal species or is it, does it make the ants sick? Like, what is it doing? 
Right, that's exactly it. it, it so the trichoderma it, it, in our paper, and there's other species in other ants that, that do something similar. They're in particular will harm the, the good guy fungus, the, the leucoagaricus, we call it the cultivar. So the, by harming the good guy fungus, it destroys the ant food. And it actually, the trichoderma will, will cause the good guy fungus to essentially dissolve, right? The, 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 the lice them, right? And that will, uh, they'll be able to take the nutrients from the good guy fungus and the trichoderma will eat it, right? That's how, that's how they grow. So be, by denying the ants their food source, that's sort of indirectly bad for the ants, even though it doesn't make the ants sick themselves. Now, there's other fungi that do make the ants sick directly, but that's sort of a, a different thing. So that's part of the uniqueness of this system is that we're not talking about something that makes the ants sick directly. We're talking about something that makes the ants partner sick, and then that's bad for the ants indirectly. So it's <laughs> sort of this extended thing because there's more players involved. Involved, yeah. So Marcy, this goes back to that, you know, topic from earlier around the comparisons between human farming and the ants farming. Because what, you know, also our food sources can become subject to disease if pathogens get into our gardens. And so how, what, what do the ants do? Like, what do we know about how, how they, do they, do they weed out these? Like what's happening? So um, in the case of what we are, what are the paper that we were, that started this all, um, in that case, they're weeding. Um, they're essentially coming and it somehow, and that's actually the subject of the next series of experiments, um, somehow they're detecting that there's a pathogen there, that there's something wrong. Um, and so they, the ants come and they take a little, there's videos attached to that paper as well. So um, you can sort of, the ants come, they weed a little part of it, and then they, around those boxes that Jonathan was showing, um, they'll have like a whole section of what we call trash. And so um, in that trash, it, we can, we showed in the paper that it's just, when the ants are present, that it's just full of trichoderma um, and that the garden, uh, the ants get down to even a sort of a small garden, um, quite small, I think. Um, Jonathan would be the one to make sure that this is accurate, but they can get to quite a small portion of garden and still build it back up. Um, and so they're essentially taking apart the, the garden until only the healthy bits remain. And the part that we're most interested in to study next, I know that we're sort of in the middle of our discussion, but um, this leads to that part, which is how does the ant know? So how does the ant know? And so we can show um, using the chemical tools um, that um, of extraction and isolation of molecules and testing those molecules back and seeing that same response by the ants from these molecules, we can show um, we can show that there are specific molecules that are that are causing the weed or at least i don't know that we proved causation i suppose but the molecules are there and the ants will weed just those molecules so we did the experiments with the trichoderma fungus um, we had controls of course um, and then we did it with trichoderma extract so a crude extract uh, no trichoderma cells left and then we did with a whole series of compounds called peptiballs. And um, those peptiballs are uh, very plentiful in trichoderma. They're just a class of molecules um, that aren't very good for most anything um, because they're quite uh, destructive. Um, and, but these trichoderma molecules 
will cause the ants to weed. Um, and it's pretty amazing, actually. So that's, that's, that is really cool. That's really cool. So there's, they're somehow sensing these molecules, right? Um, I think, I think that's what's fascinating about natural products chemistry. And I, I know you appreciate this too, Marcy, as, as a natural products chemist is, is this way that, you know, microbes communicate with each other and also with other species and plants communicate with each other. There's, there's all this chatter happening around us constantly. And it's, it's really exciting when you can tune into that, that chatter. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess one other question I have is how did you both start collaborating together? I mean, here we have someone doing natural products chemistry and then you're studying ants and symbiosis. Like how did this happen? I think that's really neat to see how these kind of, um, yeah, collaborations evolve. So I'll start and Jonathan can chime in in a second. Um, but, um, I will say that I knew when I started as a faculty member, I knew I wanted to study microbes and I thought I would focus mostly on marine hosts. So uh, marine invertebrates and their microbes. And so I did that for a couple of years. And uh, along the way, I invited a very um, prominent member of the community to come and give a, st uh, a seminar at UConn when I was at the University of Connecticut. Um, and uh, he came, gave a seminar and I had done all this work to make sure that the room was full and that everybody was there and excited about his talk. And one of Jonathan's colleagues uh, came up to me afterwards. And so we have a whole portion of my research group that focuses on squid microbe chemistry. Um, and so um, uh, we, um, so we, um, uh, we started working on squid microbe chemistry and then it must not have been too much longer um, when Jonathan came to do his interview. And I actually remember being part of his process, the, the interview process, um, and we got started talking about this and, um, and it just was a very natural collaboration. But um, because the fungus garden ants are pretty well studied in different places, especially in the tropics, um, we know a lot about the chemistry. One of the things we haven't talked at all about today is that yet today um, is that one of the main things that is exciting about this 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 really multipartite system is that the um, the ants carry a bacteria. Many of the ants carry a bacteria on their chest or their propleural plate, which um, I always, whenever I give a seminar, I joke is that uh, I practice that quite a lot. Um, uh, but it's basically living on the, the bacteria is on the chest of the of the ant and is protective against fungi. In our case, we were really interested in this weeding behavioral response, but there's a whole suite of different kinds of protections that the ant does for its very important fungus garden. Um, not dissimilar in some ways to the ways that we protect our gardens, um, so. That's great, and, and Jonathan, how about you? Like What's your take on, on collaborating with the chemist? Oh, I, I love it. And, and so for me, uh, I've always, uh, ever since my PhD training, been collaborating with chemists in different ways. And uh, when, when I was a postdoc, I started working on ants at University of Wisconsin-Madison, we collaborated with a chemistry group who was doing very much working on those bacteria living on the ants' propleural plates and producing these antimicrobial compounds. And when I came in and interviewed, I specifically asked to meet with Marcy because I knew I needed that collaboration to keep this project going and, and to extend it to the next directions. 
and, and so it's been a really uh, uh, fun and fruitful collaboration with, with lots more to come. That's great. Well, I want to I want to dive in a little bit deeper and get really really nerdy with you, Marcy. <laughs> so, are we ready? All right. So you've spoken a bit about these complex chemical signatures, and you've given given an introduction to metabolomics as a tool for detecting those signatures. What I'd like to 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 do now is maybe can you tell us a bit more about this new tool? It's called Impact and how you use this in, in investigating this complex chemical system. Sure. So we this was recently published and um, in an, the journal Analytical Chemistry, so folks can go and check it out there. It is also, there, um, it's available, it's an open source tool on GitHub. Um, and so a graduate student in the lab, Robert Samples and I worked together um, to develop this tool because one of the challenges with natural products chemistry, with metabolomics is how do you prioritize? And so we often see thousands of compounds or features. We don't know if they're compounds yet, so we call them something else, but we can see 10,000, 15,000, 20,000. How do you go from 15,000 compounds into figuring out what's important? What's the biological, Import, biologically important molecule, either for a drug discovery project or in our case to understand what's happening with the ants and the trichoderma. And so EMPACT uh, will do, um, it built off of some work that the Czech lab did in Greensboro and she, um, the first paper I had read where people were doing triplicate injections of metabolome with the, of their of their extracts and and I thought, wow, this is amazing because mass spec is so noisy. And so, but the unfortunately, the method that they had used wasn't easily adaptable to our system. So uh, Robert and I got working more and more in this, especially during the pandemic, um, where we had lots of computational time. And so this tool will um, take your replicate injections and tell you what's real. Um, and then it will also go from there to help you prioritize. And so um, my favorite one of these, a lot of people are more, more and more comfortable looking at volcano plots. So they can see what's, what compounds are upregulated in their treatment versus the control. And the tool, this tool will do a lot of that sort of initial prioritization on the metabolomic side. So. Um, it's a lot. It's it's very helpful. It doesn't solve all of our problems, but it definitely helps us get to the next part of the story. This next step. I mean, for for all of the folks in, in the audience that are trying to envision this, I mean, the way I like to think of it, too, is you've got this haystack with so many different molecules present. And you're really the hardest part of the job is figuring out which of those needles in the haystack are the most important for the things that you're observing in nature. And I think that's exciting like to have another tool that can help us get there. That's really yeah. great. Yeah. Now, hey, um, if, I, if I could yeah. jump in too, I think one of the cool things about the collaboration we were talking about is Mars has been able to take those tools and we can throw extracts on our ants and do things like that and say what molecules are different when we put them in the natural system in these little boxes and stuff. Right, and so this is, that's part of the collaborative part is between the two of us is we can take her tools and apply them to the, to the system in my lab uh, 
and and be able to come up with these 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 ways of, of drilling down and figuring out what the the important things are. That's exciting. Well, and as you're as you're speaking about you know these complex communication systems, we have multiple species involved. You have the host of, of the ants, you have food sources, you have pathogens in play. There's bacteria, as you said, on the ant's chest. I mean, all of this is screaming microbiome to me. How, what are, are there any lessons that you've learned, you know, from the studies of these interactions of ants and fungi and other microbes? Are there any, any relevant lessons that could apply to our own human microbiome? Uh, sure. So um, I'm sure Jonathan can speak to the, the microbiome side and the, um, in the terms of the metabolome, we, um, we have other projects in the group where we're looking at human colorectal cancer. Um, folks have spent quite a lot of time, um, other scientists have looked at um, the microbiome changes for humans with colorectal cancer. So between like a normal patient, a patient, a healthy patient and uh, uh, someone with cancer. And they, they've, um, they've compared and shown that there are differences in the microbiome, especially for colorectal cancer that I'm talking about. Um, what, and there's been some targeted metabolomics where they look for the top 200 compounds that might be changing and that we know. Um, and so what we're doing is really taking the lessons, the tools and techniques that we've worked with Jonathan and uh, other collaborators on um, to, to start to look at untargeted metabolomics of these really complex, e e equally, I don't know if they're equally complex, but they're, they're quite complex um, and, and with the biomedical relevance as well. So I think that's how I would answer that question. How about you, Jonathan? Yeah, I'll take a slightly different tack. Uh, so people often ask me, like, so, so you know, these ants are cool, but why, why have you devoted your career to do, like, why, why, why do you do this, right? Uh, and, and I think one thing that people don't realize necessarily who aren't sort of in it all the time is that when you have something like humans in their microbiome, it's ridiculously complicated and experimentally so hard to be able to do the type of science that Marcy and I did with this paper, where you can drill really far down and sort of pick it all apart. When you have a, a, a system like this, we call them model systems, and they're relatively simple. I mean, they're still hideously complicated as we've gone over, right? But it's a thousand times less complicated than doing this with people. Uh, and, and we can do things that you can't do with people. I can't make a colony of people and treat them with something, right? Like, that's not a thing. We don't do that, right? Like, who would do that? But, but, but that's part of the advantage of working with these animal systems is we can drill down there. And then when we discover things, like this idea of this extended defense response, right? That the ants are protecting against something about the good guy. We can then take that to other systems. So for example, with humans, right? Humans have bacteria all through their gut, their microbiome, right? and that provides benefits to humans. So we can start to ask questions like, do humans do things to protect those gut microbes that might otherwise be harmed by something like a bacteriophage, a virus that infects the bacteria. And indeed, when you go search the literature, there's hints that this might be true. Humans actually secrete antibodies that will bind a gut bacterium and will protect it from phage infection, at least in the lab, right? It's tough to tell in the real world. 
But by doing the stuff we do with model systems, then we can go to the more complicated things and say, okay, so I've got this idea, let's take a look at this. That's, that's really, that's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, in science, it's teasing apart so many different variables. And even in this system, as we are hearing, you have thousands of, of unique variables with all these different chemicals. It, it just, and that's with just a few organisms at play. When you put in the complexity of, like you said, the gut microbiome, you know, we're talking diversity on the scale of viruses, fungi, bacteria, host, and many, many species of each, and many, many different signals going back and forth. And that's what makes it so beautiful and yet so incredibly challenging, I think, um, to study. Um, yeah. Well, another another question I had is we know that these ants are responsive to signals from fungal pathogens in, in their gardens, but what about other environmental signals? I mean, these are organisms living out in the wild. Are there other things happening in the environment that may modify their behavior? What, what do we know about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, uh, this is something that we're getting more and more involved in. And uh, uh, actually, one of the projects that we just started in the last year uh, in collaboration with Marcy, this is sort of our next lurch forward, is uh, we went uh, to, to one of our field sites in Wharton State Forest, New Jersey. So it's in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. It's where we do a lot of our work. And uh, 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 we showed up, uh, my student and I, and the forest was on fire. We hadn't heard it because it was while we were traveling to the forest, the forest fire was popping up. So um, with the help of the, the, the Park Service staff, we were able to get into some of our long-term collection sites and, and perform collections like the day after the fire had passed through. And so what we're doing now is we're looking at how the effects of forest fires will affect the symbiosis. We can think of things like it'll burn up all the leaves so it'll be hotter, it'll be drier. Uh, when leaves burn, they produce uh, pyrogenic metabolites, fire uh, toxins that are caused by, by fire burning biomass. Right, so how's that going to affect everything? Uh, there might be less food, so that might induce starvation. And so, uh, and of course, forest fires are a really important thing to study, and we know very little about it in regards to symbiosis because it's one of those things that's predicted to become more frequent, more severe as a result of climate change. And so this is a really pressing topic. And now we can take all these tools that we've developed with this model system, with our preliminary understanding of it, and now start asking these, these broader questions uh, and forest fires, uh, one of them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that there, that there would be changes in response to, yeah, major shift above ground, <laughs> also affecting temperature below ground. I mean, this gets into my questions around the whole rhizosphere. Um, you know, we've been talking about the interactions between these ants and fungi just with each other, but really more and more information is coming out around this idea of a worldwide web of, of fungi that basically are beneath our feet. And there's this whole other underexplored territory in the ground. Do you, I mean, I know this is a little bit beyond what we, what we plan to talk about today, but do you have any, any thoughts about that and how, how studies moving deeper into the rhizosphere may elaborate on our understanding of chemical ecology or health of the planet? Like, yeah, a very big question. Sorry, I have a, I have a habit of asking very <laughs> big, long questions. 
It's kind of a giant question, but I think that it's one of the things that's so exciting about the work with Jonathan is that the, the, this, this idea that we were able to capture um, this, the fire, this, fire, this forest fire right after it happened and now mm -hmm. have continued to work on that same region to see what the overall response is. And so to get back to your question, I would say that more and more we're seeing in the popular press, in the scientific literature, um, how things like forest fire might be affecting um, wine production, like grapes for wine production. Mm -hmm. And um, while, so, so the paper I'm thinking about is about uh, forest fires in California and affecting the Napa Valley crops. Um, I don't think anybody really looked at what that meant for the fungi in the soil. Um, and was mm -hmm. that the real thing that um, that was affecting the overall system? It, like, so the pyrogenic metabolites got into the, the flavor of the wine, but did they get in based on the root system or based on, who knows? Uh, right? fungi, this is part of the, what is it called in, in kind of wine connoisseurs? It's the terroir of the wine. It, it's not just about the soil. It's what's all growing in the soil. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it has, one of the things that I love about working on the ant system is we can start to an answer questions about how fire affects the ant, the microbe, and the 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 cultivar, the beneficial fungus, um, or the the food fungus. I don't know how to say that, but um, <laughs> we can answer those kinds of questions with and without forest fire influence, or and do this in the lab using the box that Jonathan showed and all sorts of controlled experiments. And then we could broaden that to think about, well, what happens when there are fires in um, different regions and how does that mm -hmm. affect our food crops, our wine? Um, and I have no idea how to say the word that you just said. So. Terroir, not terror, terroir. It's terroir. terroir. <laughs> I don't even it. So. Yeah. yeah. It's, it does affect flavor. It affects, yeah, there's so many, I think there's so many, like you're saying, so many downstream effects of what's happening in the environment that definitely plays a role in our human food systems, um, for sure. Do you have anything to well, add, Jonathan? Yeah? It, yeah, I was thinking of your, your, your question about, about the rhizosphere, and for sure there's lots of stuff going on, and, and lots of really interesting chemical ecology in that system. Uh, we've done a little more thinking about actually the opposite end, the, the foliar system, the leaves, um, and thinking about what, what comes in, right? And uh, I mean, when I showed the, the box of, of ants in the lab, right, it's it sort of, it, it's truncated of what's actually happening in the wild, right? Because there's actually all this stuff on the outside. And we, there's some work out there with some ant species that can, that show that they prefer some leaves over others. That is to say, like, they have a flavor that they want, right? And, and why do they, why do they do that? What does that mean? One of those papers, it's something that we've been looking at with Marcy's group and with others, is uh, is that there are particular micronutrients in the plants that the ants forage and bring back that do interesting things. Um, so, for instance, there the ants are strangely enriched in copper as a micronutrient. Uh, so, uh, and a lot of it is like structural in their mandibles and things like that. Yeah. But this, the symbionts all have their own preferences, and copper is a toxin, a toxin mm -hmm. in some concentrations, but it's a micronutrient in others. And so one of our emerging directions is, is how do the ants control that sort of thing? And, 
We actually have some preliminary data of some ant immune molecules that might bind copper and be responsive to different conditions. So that's a really um, interesting emerging frontier, I think, that will be more Absolutely. I mean, we call this zoo pharmacognosy. Zoo meaning animal, pharmacon mean medicine. Cognosy is knowledge. So it's animals knowing about medicine. And I mean, as you're speaking, I'm thinking immediately of one of my colleagues here at Emory studies um, monarch butterflies that selectively lay their eggs on plants that are you know, enriched for cardinalized kind of these cardiac glycoside type molecules in certain types of milkweed that defend their offspring against pests. So now my mind's thinking, are ants self-medicating? I mean, I, could, I, could, I, I don't think it's that far out of reach to think that they could based on their species preferences for food or perhaps which foods are feeding the fungi, maybe the fungi become the medicine. <laughs> it's just the, the options are limitless in so many ways. Yeah. Oh, sure. And, and we think about it a lot in terms of niche, right? Is that there's going to be this sort of set of conditions where something is happy, right? Now, when you have a system like this, where there's two sets of conditions, they kind of have to overlap. And how do those move around? And you want to yeah. keep the pathogens away. So maybe they're trying to move them in different directions, but it's all very multidimensional, right? It's not just one metabolite, like, like, like the cardinalides or something like that. It's going to be all these different things. It's going to be copper, it's yeah. going to be these peptidols from the chicken dinner. It's going to be everything, right? And how do we disentangle that multidimensionality? I think it's fascinating. It's totally fascinating. All right. I know we're running low on time. So I'm going to jump ahead to, well, two more quick questions. Number one is we, we talked a little bit about where you're going. Are there any other things you'd like to share about next steps with these types of projects? We've talked about fires, kind of the fire monitoring more the direction you're going now, or? Yeah, so no, the fire is a big one. Oh, you first. the fire is a big one. Uh, and Marcy talked a little bit about the, the who's doing the, the, who, the who's signaling. I think one of the ideas that's really interesting to me is that the cultivar, maybe does it have a distress signal? Does it, does it get infected and say, help me please? And <laughs> what, what, what might that signal look like, right? So uh, yeah. I think that's a fascinating idea. So uh, I'm really interested in the look at that. Yeah. yeah, and so the other piece to this is, uh, Jonathan mentioned copper, but we're actually looking at metals in a bigger way. Um, these, uh, one of the things that makes a lot of the collaborations that uh, I, we've had over the time, over time, really unique is that there's a lot of beneficial microbes. And so um, the cultivar in this case, and the, the bacteria, the pseudonocardia that lives, the bacteria that lives on the ant chest, they're highly evolved beneficial microbes. Um, and the, the system is highly evolved. And so um, how they interact with metals might give us clues to how to find microbes that are beneficial in humans or in systems where we don't know what those where we don't know what those beneficial microbes are um and so you could think about potentially i don't know that i've actually gone this far down the road but i suppose you could think about these as probiotics so mm -hmm. we could use the way that the beneficial microbes and the pathogen microbes interact with the host because um, and around the metal sort of one of the ways that we're doing that is via looking at how they compartmentalize metals away from each other or towards the beneficial microbes um, and use those types of interactions to interrogate or to ask that same question in 
in the more complex systems like humans where we don't know what's beneficial. That's great. That's great. All right, last question. And this is a fun, easy one. I like to ask my guests, well, in this case, I'll ask you, I'll give you two options. Do you have a gardening tip that you've learned from the ants or do you have a favorite recipe? It doesn't have to, you know, necessarily relate to the ants. Unless you do eat ants, there are some edible ants you can try, but. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, so the way that we collect ants is through this instrument called an aspirator, which is a tube that I stick in my mouth and it goes into a 50 mil falcon tube. And there's another tube that comes out of the end and it's got a, a cheesecloth filter on the end. But sometimes that filter fails. And so you get an <laughs> ant or two in there and, and they're crunchy. We'll say that. They're crunchy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, all right. So mouth pipetting ants is one uh, recipe option. <laughs> Marcy, do you have any, any tips that you've had from, uh, that you've learned from the ants for gardening or any other recipes? <laughs> Weed often. Um, so, <laughs> weed, so often. Yeah. weed often. Um, I think that we love the, uh, so I don't have a recipe to share, um, but we, um, we, we just moved about a year ago and um, our new house, the gardens were not as well. So we had sort of gardened over the years at our old house and, um, and here we just sort of, my daughter was super excited about having herbs. And so, but mm -hmm. I was like anxious about the weeding and yeah. I finally gave up and the herbs are just fine. So they, like, they, they do okay as well. They so do okay. I guess my, okay. the, my, <laughs> I, it's not a very good tip, but it's, it's my gardening <laughs> tip. <laughs> I definitely, I've been, I've been traveling the past two weeks, so I definitely need to do some weeding this weekend. <laughs> it's my gardens a bit that uh yeah it's, it's kind of exploded in good and bad ways so lots of lots of produce i'm sure to harvest well thank you so much both of you for coming on the show and you know where can i send folks to learn more about your research um are you on social media we both have twitter accounts um and so i'm at balloonist lab uh, i'm at clausen lab Awesome. And, uh, and I think our, our websites are also going up there, like on the screen. Yes. Um, so uh, we can have links to those as well. So Great. And I'll make sure to include um, links to all these resources on the show notes so that our listeners can check those out. Well, thank you both so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you so much. Great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth, for helping bring a great show to you each and every week. Um, if you'd like to see older episodes of the show, you can do so at our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also head over to Teach Ethnobotany on the, as a YouTube channel where we have video versions of both this episode and other episodes where we try to bring some visual elements into the show as well. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.